This podcast is offered by Jikoji Zen Center on the web at jikoji.org. Our programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Good morning, welcome all. Thanks for coming out on a drizzly morning. My name's Kokyo, coming up from Santa Cruz. And I hear that today is the monthly Science and Buddhism Day discussion this afternoon. So I was asked to, um, if possible, maybe bring up something relevant to science. We probably got the Buddhism part covered. (laughs) So I just thought of this old Zen story uh, about atoms. So I thought uh, we could talk about atoms today. Scientific enough? (laughs) (laughs) Some scientists are really into atoms and trying to understand what they are and so on. And I think some of the, some of the ancient uh, Buddhist ancestors were also trying to understand what atoms were. <clears throat> so this is a Zen story from the Book of Serenity, case 34, called Feng Shui's Single Atom. <clears throat> and the, uh, the introduction to this story goes like this. Bare-handed, empty-fisted, a thousand changes, ten thousand transformations. Though this is making something out of nothing, what can you do? You use the provisional to symbolize the real. But tell me, is there an original basis or not? Kind of a poetic intro to this story. And here's the story. Feng Shui, who is this uh, 10th century Chinese Zen ancestor, said, if you raise up a single atom, the nation flourishes. If you don't raise up a single atom, the nation perishes. And later, hearing about this saying, Shui Do, another Zen ancestor, held up his staff and said, Are there any patrobe monks who will live the same and die the same? Who will live together and die together? <clears throat> so that's today's atomic story. The longer version of the story that's um, quoted in the commentary here, uh, which I think is, is, uh, brings, brings it out even more, Feng Shui says, if a single atom is raised up or set up, the nation flourishes, but the peasants frown. The peasants furrow their brows. If a single atom is not set up, the nation perishes, but the the peasants rest easy. The peasants live in peace. So an atom here uh, could mean almost anything. And we could hear this story as... uh, Whenever we bring anything forward, uh, something else is lost. It's kind of a, everything is kind of a trade-off. If we raise up something here, then something else gets lost. It's kind of like how interdependence works. If something happens over here, something else happens over here. And it's, it's a little bit like I think it's kind of emphasizing when, if something's gained, something's lost. And if something's lost, something's gained. So 
we could hear this and uh, apply this story to many different uh, areas. The nation, I think, the nation flourishing or perishing, we could just hear as um, the kind of the institution with all its um, laws and um, forms and uh, structure, which, um, you know, the government likes the nation to flourish, but sometimes the peasants who uh, are like living out in the mountains, just farming their fields, um, they feel maybe like um, if the, down in the capital things are flourishing, they kind of feel like, why are people, why go to so much trouble to make the nation flourish like this? And, uh, or maybe worse, like we were just happily farming here, but now the, now the government, um, uh, you know, people are coming and telling us we have all these regulations on our farm now. They might feel so they furrow their brows, even though the nation's flourishing. So there's some contrast here, poetically, between the, the nation and the peasants. In modern times, we might say um, raising up a, an atom would be like, let's have a great slogan like, make America great again. And, um, and the 1% start flourishing. But the peasants, uh, or the, you know, the poor and homeless, they furrow their brows and frown. And like, well, you say America's great again and it's flourishing, but um, I don't feel that way. That's maybe a kind of political interpretation. It sounds kind of political, but I think the Zen people were just using this as, as a, a kind of metaphor for any kind of atom. And you can also translate it as a speck of dust, a tiny speck of dust. We bring forth something and uh, to make something flourish, sometimes at the expense of other uh, aspects of this world. <clears throat> so another kind of raising up an atom could be um, the atom of science and technology. So much innovation and and um, and the. Uh, the developed world is flourishing with the latest um, manifestations of technology. Uh, but um, is there some, are there some peasants somewhere who are um, frowning? <laughs> maybe they're overwhelmed by technology or maybe there's, there's a shadow side to raising any speck of dust. I recently came across this um, this article by Peter Russell is a philosopher, a British philosopher, kind of spiritual philosopher. And um, he wrote this article called, um, What If There Were No Future? And uh, it's a beautiful article to contemplate some of the things he's bringing up. It, some of the, um, kind of a summary of this article, Peter Russell says, Thus, to the recurrent question of how is it that the most intelligent and creative species on this planet has also become the most dangerous, the answer is now becoming clear. The two go hand in hand. Maybe we could say the nation flourishing and the peasants frowning go hand in hand. They, they go together. Russell says, when we view the future through the lens of exponential development, and I think this is his way of talking about this incredible speed with which technology is developing. We, when we view the future through the lens of exponential development, we're faced with the conclusion that technological civilizations are intrinsically short-lived. That's his proposal. It's a kind of a radical idea and not everyone might agree, but that's his kind of thesis in this article. He says that there's, 
these civilizations, technical, technological civilizations, are short-lived, not because of any fault in technology itself or wrong thinking on the part of their people, but from the consequences of accelerating development itself. Marvelous as they may be in their moment of glory, technologically empowered intelligence may exist for only a flash in cosmic time. It's an interesting proposal that it's almost like if we develop more and more quickly, faster than we can deal with all the, con the consequences, that it's, um, it will, it will um, that very civilization that develops so quickly will kind of burn itself out, will, um, won't be able to survive. And, it's, and that he's saying it's kind of a natural thing. It's nobody's fault. It's just we, we're too smart <laughs> for our own good. He, he compares this to a, um, a century plant, or I think it's the same as a yucca. Is a yucca a century plant? They're different? I think they're very similar, though, right? And they, they both have this quality, um, I think, of, um, you know, they, they, grow, they grow over some years, and then at the end of their life, they shoot forth this... This, um, they raise up a, um, a stalk filled with these beautiful white flowers. If anyone's been to Tassajara in the mountains, there's these yucca plants. And they're just these spiny, dry, desert-like plants. And once in their lifetime, they send up this stalk, like beautiful, um, soft white flowers out of this dry stalk. And then... The plant it dies, the whole plant dies. So it kind of, it's beautiful swan song is like, is the end of its life also. So Peter Russell compares this, this um, idea of civilizations in their, in their most flourishing, uh, when the nation is most flourishing, when civilization is, is at the peak of its technological intelligence, um, that's when it dies. And he's saying, there can be something kind of beautiful about this. We can, when we look at that plant, we can celebrate that last flourishing of, of beautiful flowers. <clears throat> so that could be an example of um, the nation flourishing and the, the peasants in the background saying, I don't know about this. Could there be a, a shadow side to the nation flourishing? Um, even when we talk about um, science and Buddhism, I think it's a, it's, a, uh, it's a movement now in the Western world of bringing these two uh, fields together. And in some ways, it helps Buddhism to flourish. I think it does. The, the discussion of science and Buddhism and the interface a lot, I think more people who wouldn't be interested in Buddhism are interested because of the connection to science. It's almost like a skillful means to, um, to open, open the Buddha's teachings even wider to kind of correlate it with modern science. So there's something beautiful. The Buddhist nation flourishes. But I don't know, are there maybe some peasants, that, that um, Buddhist peasants, that aren't, here today coming for science and Buddhism that are furrowing their brows and say, do we need all this science stuff? I thought we just, we never needed it before. Can't we just sit and, and fully appreciate the present without any um, scientific uh, backup? Some peasants might furrow their brows like that. <clears throat> but today I wanted to... Um, Look at this story of raising a single atom uh, in terms of actual the, um, Buddhist understanding of atoms <coughs> and how it maybe does correlate with science. So um, if we may have to maybe get into a little philosophy here, Buddhist philosophy. So if some of you wanted to just come and sit quietly today, you're welcome to furrow your brows because I'm going to raise up some atoms 
<laughs> for, for contemplation today. Please excuse me. This, this Chinese character for Adam here, a single Adam that's raised, is, um, is, uh, also means dust and um, kind of means like the world, the mundane world it's sometimes used for. But it's also um, the Chinese way of translating this Indian uh, Buddhist term, paramanu. And paramanu is, I think, a good way to translate it into English is atom. It's uh, sometime, maybe after the Buddhist time, but not long after the Buddhist time in India, uh, Buddhism as an institution, the nation of Buddhism, started getting more and more um, elaborate and trying to um, fill in all the gaps that the early sutras didn't uh, fill in. Uh, many, many people were practicing uh, this new movement in India called Buddha Dharma. And, uh, and they were talking with philosophers of other Indian religions too. So naturally, questions came up about what is real, what is ultimately real, and what, is, what, is, um, what, is, what are the elements that make up this world that we live in. And uh, so this theory of atoms, like an atomic theory, was brought up a long time ago. Atoms are like the kind of physical, material building blocks of the material world, just like the modern Western view. <clears throat> and uh, this is what we're talking about for those who looked into a little Buddhist philosophy. We call the Sarvastivadin school of Buddhism. And uh, Sarvastivada means um, all existence school. So it's the school that proposed um, that there's these uh, that there's these elements um, of experience and of the world that truly exist, and um, they proposed like seventy-five elements of my mental processes that like um, are the kind of building blocks of mental experience and that these building blocks can't be broken down any further. They're like the, um, they're kind of the, you can't deconstruct them anymore. And then things like, for example, people are not like building blocks. People are like complex combinations of a bunch of other physical and mental elements. So people can be, we could say, deconstructed into their building blocks. Uh, psychological building blocks would be like, the five aggregates, form, feeling, perceptions, formations, consciousness. And these five elements of experience that you could say kind of make up the appearance of a person, these five can't be broken down any further. Like, you, like there's a pure feeling of pleasant and, or unpleasant, and you can't deconstruct it any further. It, it truly exists, the Savastavadans say, this momentary feeling of pleasant or unpleasant. And form is like matter, which also um, truly exists. Even though the person that's made up of matter doesn't really truly exist, the person kind of conventionally appears. Anything that's constructed of these kind of building blocks is just a conventional appearance, but the building blocks are ultimate truth for the Sarvastivadins. This, this kind of model or framework of, the, we call the two truths, conventional truth and ultimate truth, has, has um, been all through uh, Buddhism. As Buddhism develops in India, the understanding of what is ultimate truth and what is conventional truth changed and evolved. But in this early model of Sarvastivadin school, Ultimate truth was these um, kind of unbreakable, undeconstructible um, elements of experience. And conventional truth is the appearances that are built from these building blocks. 
constructed phenomena. Whereas the building blocks are not constructed phenomena. They're constructed means made up of different things, or compounded means made up of different elements. So these building blocks are ultimately true. And uh, in addition to these 75 mental elements, <coughs> there's also moments of time called kshana in Sanskrit that are like, I don't know, it's, I think they say it's like a 64th of a second or something. But they propose that there's these moments that you can't break down any further. And they really exist. The tiniest moment of time really exists and the tiniest moment of space or the tiniest moment of matter exists. That's these paramanu or atoms. They're partless particles, I mean they can't be deconstructed anymore. Nowadays we, you know, first I think that modern scientists thought atoms were like partless particles and couldn't be deconstructed and now they find that atoms are actually made up of protons, neutrons, and electrons. So atoms have parts. But then, you know, at least, um, sci you know, science up to, I don't know, 50 years ago or something, proposed that those parts can't be broken down anymore. You can't break, um, you can't divide an electron into different parts. As far as my, I know with my rough understanding of science, maybe I have to stay for science and Buddhism discussions to learn more. Um, but the Buddhist science was um, that there's these partless particles called paramanu that are so tiny that they can't be um, divided anymore. And that's why they're ultimately true. Anything that can be divided into parts is just a, is a conglomeration, is a compounded thing. Does that make sense? Anything that's made of parts is a kind of illusion. It conventionally appears, but it's not ultimately true because it's, you can break it down into its parts. Both mental, like an, a complex emotion is, is not ultimately true because it's made up of different elements, physical and mental elements. But there's these building blocks this school proposed that are ultimately true, indivisible. So these, um, these atoms seem to be like, the, in the material world, they are ultimately, they are the ultimate truth. Some scientists might um, feel that that's what's, it's sort of in accord, I think, with, um, with some science, that the unbreakable building blocks are what is truly real. And that, you know, tables and chairs and people and stuff are like not as ultimately real as atoms. It's kind of a scientific view in Buddhism, I would say. Atomic theory, sometimes called. Uh, <clears throat> um, and uh, you could say raising up this teaching of atoms the single teaching of single atoms, the nation of Buddha Dharma flourished in this ancient time in India. This kind of Buddhist cosmology got more and more developed. It was, it was a flourishing philosophical system. They were trying to leave nothing unexamined. They were trying to cover all the bases when other schools would come and say, oh, you know, what are you saying is ultimately real? We say, well, they're these atoms and they're ultimately real. So you can't question that, can you? Unbreakable, partless particles. Uh, so, I, and it seemed like this school was flourishing in India, but there were maybe some peasants, peasant practitioners in ancient India who thought that they were getting a little bit too heady and too philosophical and too, um, <coughs> too technical. And they were missing the point of Buddha's teachings, which was just to find peace and happiness in the present um, being. You don't need all this teaching about atoms to find happiness. Some of these meditators in India might have thought. They might have furrowed their brows when they saw Buddhism flourishing with this advanced philosophy. <clears throat>
So, um, so it may be that some of these practitioners felt like we have to kind of challenge this view of, of the Sarvastivada school that's flourishing so strongly now. Um, maybe we could, we could challenge it by like not bringing up a single atom. We could, um, if we don't bring up a single atom, maybe this advanced philosophy will kind of crumble, the nation will perish, but the uh, us peasant yogis can rest easy. So like, how can we do this? Um, maybe some of them felt like, we'll just sit here and um, demonstrate presence free of atoms. Maybe people like Bodhidharma, that was his style. He's going to sit here. And some people noticed him, but not so, ma- so many people noticed them because they were really busy working at a- atomic theories. <laughs> and like, well, that guy's just sitting over there. He's got nothing to say. <coughs> so maybe some people in India were like, the just sitting thing um, maybe won't, won't really, um, won't really um, meet the, the, um, the Sarvastivadins with their atomic theory. Let's meet them with another theory, because that's what they're into. Let's try to, um, to kind of uh, deconstruct their indestructible atomic theory. And these were the people like Nagarjuna, the middle way practitioners. So they kind of used some logic, that Sarvastivadas were somewhat into logic, to kind of like um, deconstruct these theories. And um, I think a beautiful kind of um, logical argument that kind of like undermines atoms as ultimate truth is this argument that I think actually, I've heard this argument proposed by another Indian teacher, Vasubandhu, and it's, it's not that hard to grasp. That's why I bring it up and see what you think of this. This is a challenge to the theory of partless particles. So they, um, this argument is that if you have a partless particle, that's the, the ultimate truth. It can't be divided. Partless means undivisible, undiv- right? Um, either it's so, um, it's so tiny that it has no dimension at all. Literally, like, no dimension at all. Like a, like a mathematical point, I think, is, um, is theoretically has no dimension at all, a point in space. If you try to draw a point with a pencil, that's, that's not a really a mathematical point. It has some dimension. If you, with a magnifying glass, it has some distance, the tiniest point you can draw. But a um, theoretical dimensionless point um, is, um, is truly indivisible, actually. But you can't build anything from it if it has no dimension. Like um, the, the way they would talk about it in India is, it ha- if it has no extension, extension or dimension, then um, if you combined like, like dimensionless points, they'd all be like um, just one point. You can't like put two, dim- if you try to, Take one dimensional point and attach another dimension, uh, dimensionless point and attach another dimensionless point to it. They make one point, right? And then bring in a hundred more and try to like touch them all together. They would all be just one point still, right? You wouldn't have any, you couldn't build anything from dimensionless, truly dimensionless points. Can you follow that? If they have no extension, they all collapse into, into dimensionless one point. So you couldn't build conglomerations. But if you have a tiny, 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 tiny bit of extension or dimension, which is, I think, what the Sarvastivadas were kind of hoping for, is that it's really tiny, but it can't be any smaller. So tiny that it can't be any smaller. This logic here is, well, if it's really, really tiny, but it has some tiny dimension or extension, then it has a top and a bottom, and a right and a left, or an east, west, north, south, right? It, um, it has sides, and therefore it has parts. 
if there's the slightest bit of dimension, it has parts and you can deconstruct it. Okay, let's take this tiny, tiny thing that can't get any tinier, but it has a top and bottom. Okay, let's divide it now into now we just have, we have a top and a bottom. Whew, we deconstructed it, but now we take the top part. The top part has a top and a bottom. Uh-oh. Okay, we'll take the, just the tiniest sliver of the top, but that, if it's a tiniest sliver with any dimension at all, it has sides and top and bottom. It can be can deconstructed more. So you can endlessly deconstruct it. And it's, in other words, it's made of parts upon parts upon parts. So it can't be an ultimate truth. That's the theory of these of people like Nagarjuna. You can't find um, an ultimately true particle that can't be deconstructed. Can you follow that argument? I think it's a brilliant and not so hard to grasp argument that if you really kind of sit with that argument for a while, it becomes kind of disturbing, <laughs> actually. It's a philosophical argument, but it makes so much sense, logically, that if you sit with it, you really start to come to the feeling like there really can't be particles, indestructible particles. And this, you go down and down and down, there's this division and division, but is there something at the base, some final particle that can't be divided anymore? According to this logic, no, unless it's truly a, a dimensionless, extensionless particle, which even to call it a particle then is not quite right, a point in space. But if it's literally a point, then you can't put it together with other points to make up anything. So you choose one or the other. You choose like a slight bit of extension in which then you can add parts on the top and the bottom. The top and the bottom can touch, top of one can touch the bottom of another and you can build a world out of such atoms. But those atoms aren't really partless particles, right? And if you just bring, bring it down to no extension at all, then you don't have a world. So this, um, if you sit with this, this contemplation, I say it starts to become disturbing because you really start to wonder then, what is all this stuff? You can't find any basis for it. And that's what the middle way people were saying is, there isn't any like material basis. There isn't re there's an appearance of a material world, but it can't be made of anything material, really. If you go further and further down to the building blocks, you can't find any building blocks basically. This, all this solidity is, um, is just conventional appearances. <clears throat> and even, I mean, that's what Sarvastivadas were also saying, conventional appearances uh, uh, is, is lecterns and books and fists and all that. Those are just conventional appearances. But they say there must be some kind of ultimate building block, material building block. And this... Um, both Vasubandhu, who is a mind-only teacher, and Nagarjuna, this middle-way teacher, both kind of propose that you can't find any material stuff, actually, at the bottom of all this. And, um, that, and, and uh, so it's sounding like setting up another, another, kind, of another kind of atom, another kind of... Um, nation flourishing philosophy, but it's, it's a little bit different because even though people like Nagarjuna used a lot of logic, they never, pro Nagarjuna anyway, never proposed what is the building blocks. He just tried to deconstruct anything that seems to be a building block. So we say, well, what is there? And he said, well, conventionally, there's just what the world see sees and how the world works. That's conventional truth. Ultimate truth, we can't say anything about it, Nagarjuna would say. It's, um, it's nis, nis prapancha in Sanskrit. It means it's like, it's free of conceptual elaboration. It's free of any reference points of conceptuality. You, we, we, have, we can't say what this world ultimately is. Ultimate truth is inconceivable. So it's a little different than Sarvastivadas were trying to nail down the ultimate truth in conceivable atoms and conceivable moments of time and conceivable five aggregates that truly exist. 
interestingly, uh, one part of the Sarvastivada philosophy is, you know, really central to Buddhism is the fact that all phenomena are impermanent. So they can't disagree with that. So it seems a little contradictory to say like things like the five aggregates, they're constantly arising and ceasing. They're impermanent, but they truly exist. But that does seem to be what, the, what they're saying, is like all conditioned phenomena are, um, are impermanent, but they flash into existence for one moment. It's like for one moment they truly exist. And they're really there, independent of our kind of mental projections and so on. So like um, atoms are, um, they flash into existence and they truly inherently exist in and of themselves for a moment. At least that's roughly how I understand it right now. So you, which is a nice teaching to make a distinction between um, permanence and true existence. They're a little bit different. You can also make a distinction between impermanence and emptiness. We say, sometimes people say, well, everything is empty just means it's, it's impermanent and constantly changing, but actually they're two different concepts. You can have impermanent phenomena um, that seem to be really real. Like, like my hand is, it, this, my hand is moving here. It's impermanent. It's changing. The, um, the, the cells in the hand are, are, are changing moment to moment too. There's nothing permanent there, and yet the hand seems to exist in some sense. At the same time as it's impermanent, it seems to us that way. <coughs> so. Uh, so that's so people like um, Nagarjuna and Vasubandhu and Bodhidharma, I think we're like we're like let's not raise up a part a particle of dust. Let's not raise up an atom, and the nation of this advanced um, philosophy of Buddhism might start to crumble and perish, but um, us peasant practitioners can rest easy now. We don't need all this. Adam stuff. <coughs> so, um, at the end of this story uh, in the Book of Serenity, uh, Shuedo, the, um, the later Zen teacher, held up his staff and said, are there any patro monks, any practitioners who will live together and die together? We could say, live together with this staff and die together with this staff. We could hear it as, um, are there any practitioners here who will live together, like raising up particles of dust together and getting in trouble for raising up particles of dust because Peasants will frown if we do it. But are you willing to do this together? And are you willing to die together? To not raise up particles of dust and just let them go and let the peasants rest easy? Are there any willing to raise up particles and not raise up particles together? So there's um, today's science and Buddhism. Dis discussion for the morning. Uh, feng Shui's single atom. Do you have any thoughts or questions or does any of that not make sense? <coughs> yes. It seems like in the story that the way, they're, um, the way it's being described is they're almost like two different sides. There's the nation, it sounds like the government um, officials in the capital making all the laws, and the peasants that are technically living within a nation, but they maybe feel like they're not really part of it. And, um, and uh, 
and that's part of the problem, I think, is that the, for the peasants, is that the nation is like, yeah, we're going we're gonna to make things great for the whole nation here. And of course that includes all the peasants. They're all part of China and the, this great nation of China. But the peasants are like, we don't want all your like, new rules and stuff government officials down there in the capital. You think it's good for us peasants, but we actually don't even really need China. We, we can like, we can farm without any, any government edicts. So maybe the, we could say that from the point of view of the nation, the peasants are part of the nation. And above from the point of view of the peasants, they're um, actually not, don't really need to be part of the nation. Yes. You know, you can break down an <coughs> atom, but you lose the characteristic. Like a carbon can be broken down, but it's no longer carbon, and it's no longer. It doesn't matter where it comes from. I mean, it's not carbon anymore. So it really does. An atom has a characteristic that can That once you change it, it's no longer that thing. So, so a carbon atom. You can make it not a carbon atom? Well, you can divide the nucleus. Oh, okay. okay. But it's it, not going to be carbon. Anymore. Then it's not carbon. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, mm -hmm. so, so, so it is indivisible because it doesn't have its characteristic anymore. I mean, I would mm -hmm. think. Um, you could say carbon can't, can't be divided into smaller carbon. It just disappears. Right. I mean, yeah, yeah. But in terms of the particles, yeah, you can break the carbon atom into the nucleus and the electron and the Right. So, but those particles, um, I don't know what, what science says. Can you break an electron into parts? I don't think so, but that, they don't exist anyway. Ah, that's modern science, right? Yeah, they don't, you can't, they're not really particles, right? Well, if you measure them, it's, it's relative. Yeah, yeah. Change them. They're the, the um, particle and wave them. thing, right? Right, exactly. That's true. Mm -hmm. Inside the world, if you change, you observe the photon on this side of the world, you instantly change the photon yeah, on the other side of the world. Yeah, and we're, we're quantum physics is questioning whether these particles that we assumed for a long time really are kind of like partless particles again, Sarvastavada theory, is um, start, we're starting to question, are they really particles? Because sometimes they behave like waves. Right. Maybe they're not really particles, which is kind of somewhat similar to people like Nagarjuna saying, actually, we don't think there's particles at all. But Nagarjuna wouldn't say that there's waves either. He would more, he'd more say, like, we're not going to say what there is. We're, but, but the job of science, he could say, is to try to say what is. We're trying to understand, in a way, ultimate truth. I think some scientists are really trying to get what is really real here. And isn't it fascinating to try to discover so some, some Buddhists, as we heard in these stories, were trying to get at what is ultimately real in the kind of material world. And then there's these other people who kind of flipped over to the other side and said, um, um, let's, we, we're not going to try to get out. What, it, what is ultimately real is inconceivable. So um, at, with this two truths theory, right, the Sarvastivadas say the atoms are ultimate truth, and the things that are made up of atoms are conventional truth of appearances. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, as the philosophy evolved, like for Nagarjuna, he said, um, the atoms are conventional truth, because they're just um, a, a conceptual construct. You can't really find anything there. And ultimate truth is this inconceivable. You know, we say emptiness sometimes. Emptiness, uh, but not emptiness is some conceivable um, reality, but nisprapancha, free from any conceptual elaboration, is, is the ultimate truth. So it switches that the, in Buddhism, what is ultimately true um, uh, changes over time. And then later in the, in the uh, mind-only tradition, they, they put it a little differently. Instead of just saying freedom from reference points or emptiness, they say the ultimate truth is the non-duality between subject and object. It's a, little diff it's a different twist, right? That non-duality also can't be grasped. It's inconceivable. But um, 
the non-difference between an apparent subject and an apparent object. That non-difference, the emptiness of duality is the ultimate truth. Yes. Thank you. I always hesitate, and I often ask why I'm here. Um, and science. Uh, so what came to my mind, uh, especially just a few seconds ago, you talked about particles, was a book I read called The Dancing Wooly Masters. Oh, yeah. Which I liked quite a lot um, because I never studied really science uh, academically, I guess, traditionally. And it talked about in the beginning uh, how, uh, a light about light <coughs> a lot, about how we understand uh, astronomy that uh, the spectrum of light is missing if you shoot it through a gas that some of the spectrum is missing so we can understand things that are in the universe in this way through light and that also behaves like a particle unlike uh, sound I don't know how old quantum physics is uh, but it, the book uh, kept going into uh, eventually into I don't know how lo how many years it's old it is but it dealt with experimentation that's uh, science it's experimentation and at the towards the end it, it talked about Heisenberg mm -hmm. which was this uncertainty principle which I thought was the quintessential point of the book for me uh, uncertainty may be a little bit like inconceivability uh, uh, definitely, and um, it dealt with these uh, ar electrons, or I guess, so and similar kind of duality of going through an electric magnet, and one would go one way, and the other one would go other way. But the most important point of Heisenberg, to me so far at least, is that, and this is built up of experimentation, was that as soon as you made the experiment, which is an evolution of thinking. As soon as you made the experiment, you altered what it was you were looking at. Yes. So I really like that because I think it applies to language. Yes. Mm -hmm. Which yep. is why I ask myself sometimes, why am I listening to this? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, as soon as we started talking about any of this, um, the peasants furrow their brows. <laughs> so it's nice that we have a, have a um, pra we can talk about all this stuff and, and of, co of course um, Buddhist philosophy is incredibly interesting and intriguing intellectually, I find. Uh, I love it. But um, it's also nice to kind of put it all down and just sit. <laughs> it's nice we have both. You're welcome. Yes, well, this this morning's uh, sutra had um, the the phrase of uh, not holding to fixed views, yes. so that sort of undercuts a lot of this. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And uh, um, yeah, N Nagarjuna is an interesting philosopher because. He uses all kinds of logical reasoning, and um, so it looks like he's proposing all kinds of views, but if you look carefully, he's basically just deconstructing other people's views, and strictly speaking, he's not proposing any new view, and people would even say to him, like, are you proposing a new view of emptiness or something? And he'd say, well, um, my view is uh, to have no view at all. You know, just, I'm just pointing out the faults of any views. Um, prasangika madhyamaka in Sanskrit. Prasangika means um, consequentialists. So this, this kind of pinnacle of middle way philosophy is just pointing out the consequences of any conceptual view, the faulty consequences, without trying to not propose any new, better view to take its place, just any view 
breaks down, not holding to fixed views, endowed with insight, um, we can be loving and kind. <laughs> well, any time we open our mouth, yeah. it's like, you know, raising a particle of dust. Yes. So, yes. I believe I heard you mention Vasubandhu. Yes. And uh, I know the phrase uh, consciousness only yes. associated with him. Um, we have an upcoming um, short session with Ben Connolly oh, yeah. here. Um, could you outline um, just a little bit of Vasubandhu's consciousness only views and how that relates to Nagarjuna? Well, luckily the bell's about to ring. <laughs> <laughs> and since there'll be a whole session to um, explore it. But as I say, um, that his uh, Vasubandhu's tradition, in terms of these two truths, uh, you might not find it explicitly said in the, um, this way in those 30 verses of Vasubandhu, but uh, my understanding is that you can look at the ultimate truth for Vasubandhu is this non-duality of subject and object, which is sometimes we might think, if we, since it's called consciousness only, people might feel like, well, then consciousness must be the ultimate truth. But actually, Vasubandhu doesn't say that. He says consciousness in this case, mind or consciousness is also conditioned and, um, and isn't some um, inherently existent phenomena. Um, but what is truly, truly real is this non-separation or non-duality between the apparent perceiver and the perceived, the grasper and the grasped, the seer and the seen, the subject and the object, the mind and environment, that non-duality. So it's kind of safe when we say the ultimate truth is, is a negative. It's the emptiness of everything, or it's the non-duality. Then um, it's not really proposing that ultimate truth is something. So that is ultimate truth for, you can see what Ben says, but, uh, ultimate truth for, uh, for the Yogacara system. Thanks for your attention and and your if you some brows furrowed it's that's <laughs> just fine it's probably appropriate and um, now we can um, have lunch. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by Jokoji Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered free of charge, and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information about Jikoji, please visit us on the web at jikoji.org.